0: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Selma, the Academy Award-winning film now available on Blu-ray combo pack and DVD. Selma tells the incredible true story of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s historic effort to ensure voting rights for all Americans. From Paramount Pictures, rated PG-13. And by The Honest Company, featuring safe products for your family and home. Purchase your first bundle by Mother's Day and receive a free soy candle worth $20. Go to FreeHonest.com and use the promo code CULTURE. That's FreeHonest.com and the promo code CULTURE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap, the Stupid and Contagious Edition. It's Wednesday, May 6th, 2015. On today's show, Kurt Cobain's Montage of Heck is the new documentary on HBO about the frontman for Nirvana. And then, punching and getting punched in the face appears to have been a life-changing experience for Slate's Seth Stevenson. We'll ask him why. And finally, the dad bod, a nice balance between a beer gut and working out, What? Is this phenomenon all about? We will discuss. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey Dana.
2: Hey Steve. She's
3: back. I'm back. It's good to be back. Yay.
0: Okay, digging in.
2: Ooh, Steve, before we start, as as we're welcoming yeah. Dana back, uh, we should tease our Slate Plus segment at the end of oh, the show. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna do lightning round with Dana. We're gonna just whip through the six topics we covered while she was away. Well,
3: almost all six of them. We'll see. This was my idea because I was listening to the show while I was away and I was basically shouting into my earbuds and responding to you guys. So I wanted a little lightning round chance to respond in real
2: time. Yeah. So we're going to give Dana the chance to uh, tell us what she thought about all the things we discussed in her absence
0: uh, after the show. All right. Moving on. Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, is a cunningly edited two hours of art, music journals, Super 8 films, and audio montages assembled with permission from the various Cobain archives and formal ones scattered around the world. It's an almost excruciatingly intimate look inside the world of a fragile young man, the man who pulled both himself and punk rock into the commercial mainstream. Let's listen to a clip.
3: Kurt, he was full of energy, always busy. I had this old rocking chair in the corner of the front room. He'd be upside down with his head hanging off where your legs would be and his feet up on the back of the rocking chair, going 90 miles an hour in it, going so fast and it would be hitting the back of the wall. And he'd be repeating everything verbatim off Sesame Street.
2: Would you like to hear my voice? sprinkle
3: with emotion. And I thought, before I have the sixth baby, we've got to try to get this calmed down. So I take him to the pediatrician, Dr. Fulton. He did a rapid eye movement test with a flashlight in his eyes, and he went, okay, we got trouble here.
0: Well, Dana, it's awesome to have you back on the show. Let's start with an insight about this documentary. It's, uh will obviously get to Kurt Cobain and the contributions of Nirvana to popular music and on and on and on. But talk to me a little bit about it as a, as a movie.
3: I mean, I don't know about you guys. I was very interested in the subject matter and attached to the subject matter. And like you said, we'll get into that and, and Kurt Cobain and Nirvana's impact later. But I was disappointed by the way it was framed in this documentary. This documentary did something that really bothers me in documentaries about artists in particular, which is that it's didn't make the provenance of various audio and visual components clear at all. So, for example, there were some really interesting audio that were these old homemade cassette tapes that Kurt Cobain used to make before he was famous. I think he was a teenager, and he would sort of do these vocal improvisations and put in sounds and sort of make little montages. In fact, the title Montage of Heck of this documentary, I think, comes from the name of one of those mixtapes. So there would be things like that playing, but then there would be times that there seemed to be an actor maybe reading his voice, and it wasn't clear whether it was still the tape or something being recreated. Same thing with the visuals, where his notebooks were used a lot, I thought, in a fascinating way, that he kept these scribbly spiral notebooks that were full of lists of songs and song lyrics and little drawings. And, you know, he drew in a very simple, childlike way, but drawing seemed like an important part of his process. And so that was really interesting. But then they would turn into these animations that looked like, you know, had obviously been just brought in by the director, Brett Morgan. So I didn't really like that hybrid that was supposed to make it so sort of visually stimulating. I just thought it was unclear
0: Julia I'm very curious to know I could have guessed Dana's relationship to Nirvana which sounds very much like mine it was a kind of a revelation it remains you know incredibly important to the way I think about music and on and on and on. I couldn't guess what your relationship to Nirvana is. It must have that, I mean, Bleach must have come out when you were like one years old or something.
2: I'm not that young, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm getting old too. No, I mean, you know, I like was in middle school when grunge happened, you know, I read Sassy Magazine. I, that cover of Courtney Love Kissing Kurt Cobain like was delivered with a thunk through my mailbox and I you know, read every page of it. And my friends had, like, deep crushes on Kurt Cobain. He was so cute, you know. And we danced to that music in the gym, you know, at my prep school. And I remember hearing about his suicide while, I think, watching a track meet. I remember being in this, like, very, like, red brick, bright green grass, bright blue track, like, crisp springy prep school day in a kind of incongruous sunshine and learning that he'd killed himself. And it was sort of one of those an early time when a cultural figure that had meaning to me and my friends growing up died in a tragic way. So, you know, I grew up with this music and I enjoyed it and liked it. I would not say that I had like, it wasn't the album that spoke to me, like the album that I felt had been made from on high to speak to me, the young teen, as I've discussed on the show many times, is is uh, Liz Fairs' exile in Guyville, and Nirvana was just sort of in the air to me. But this documentary, sort of, sort of because of that, because I grew up in an ambient slosh of Nirvana-ness, uh, but never really thought about it critically or or had read any of the biographies or had been interested enough to pursue it more deeply. I was looking forward to watching a documentary that would teach me more about this music and where it came from and you know where it fit and. This documentary left me feeling hopelessly square. I mean, maybe if you're making a documentary about a seminal punk figure who scrambles the norms of music making, it's just hopelessly square to have like talking heads explaining things or just be super, I don't know, archival and precise about the... Origin of the materials and the which song came from where, and you know, whatever. Even just basically, like, what albums did they make and what years did they come out? No, I mean, the whole mm-hmm. thing f- was so inside. Like, even when they introduce, uh, I'd, actually, I actually don't think I've ever said his name out loud Chris Novoselic. How do you Chris say Chris Novoselic? Anyway, did they Chiron him as Kurt's friend? It's like he's. He is one of the founding musicians.
3: Well, that was a Arada. moment. Well, that was a moment where you felt the medlin fingers of Francis Bean Cobain, who was the executive producer, and probably Courtney Love as well. Right, this was a family-approved documentary. So, right, Chris Novoselic is strangely billed as Kurt's friend. Dave Grohl is not in the documentary at
2: all. Apparently, yeah. I read. I think in Variety that they interviewed him for it. But then didn't include the footage. But the sort of the Kurt's friend sort of suggests that you know the non-interviewed musicians <laughs> in his true. life are not <laughs> Kurt's friends. We don't <laughs>
3: want to imagine their Chiron. So yeah, there was definitely a sense that this was a story of Kurt Cobain forming a band, and and it was very glossed over. Like then he decided to form a band, and then these guys Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic joined him. You know, and there wasn't really any sense of the band coming together. That was not an important part of the story mm-hmm. being told.
0: Yeah, and even backing it up a little further, there was no sense of how this somewhat—I mean, not somewhat. Uh, acutely tortured, emotionally tortured, and self-torturing kid made the transition to musicianship, right? He sort of goes from being hyperactive, kind of semi-orphaned in the sense that he's bounced between kind of fragmented versions of a family, picked on at school, completely emotionally lost. And then the next thing you know, he's just kind of fully formed as a a punk rock musician. But let me quickly play the part of the square talking head that this documentary, I think in some ways to its credit, decided not to include. Watching the documentary, it occurred to me for the first time in a long time, what his role in popular music was and how big it was. And that Smells Like Teen Spirit occupies a very specific place in the culture that's so big, it's almost hard to see. And what that is basically is the punk rock had been around for almost 20 years. And in some forms, absolutely for 20 years. I mean, the Stooges and the New York Dolls preceded uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit by about two decades and had just never, ever entered into the mainstream. I mean, maybe... But aggressive, noisy, like kind of almost avowedly antisocial rock and roll of the kind you know pioneered by the Stooges and and taken up by you know the Pistols and on and on. In the United States, at least, had never had never broken through. And with Nevermind, it broke through completely. And it was through that break that Liz Vair came and all of those acts from the '90s. I mean, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, for better and for worse, remade the public ear or the mass ear relative to this kind of music, um, I believe Nevermind has sold tens of millions of copies. I mean, it's one of the best-selling rock and roll albums of all time, which if you grew up with the Pistols and the Clash and the Jam and the Stooges and the New York Dolls, the idea that it would break through and remake people's expectation of what a hard rock and roll song would sound like was mind-blowing. And I think the emotional thrust of the documentary is here's a person who's personality was organized around his hatred of the Reagan 80s that comes through very clear his hatred of the culture of like success and the bullying nature of success in American life and it took him up and swallowed him whole so so in some sense i found the documentary kind of a double revelation
2: Steve that is so interesting that makes me want to read the chapter in your book about Kurt Cobain like i'm Fascinated in a critical analysis. Is of, there one? Or
3: no, just no. I'm just, I'm just, so giving, I'm just
0: moving the finish line forward for Steve. You like, can, you can impute any number of unwritten chapters <laughs> to my book. They're, in, they're at infinity now. Steve's
3: outline just preceded
2: by another Roman numeral, MCX one one one.
0: No, Throw it on the invisible pile.
2: I mean, that's the thing to me that was frustrating about this documentary, and you know, that may also speak to why this particular stripe of music wasn't the music that most spoke to me personally as a kid. Even though it's, you know, I admire it. And I think it's beautiful, and I've had all apologies in my head since the credits rolled last night. That's just a perfect, gorgeous song. But, like, he's a fascinating and interesting cultural figure, whether you want the cultural portrait of rejection of the Reagan 80s or the kind of psychiatric portrait of this developmentally troubled kid. I think the poignancy and power of the film comes from the fact that it is authorized by all these family members, his mom, his dad, his stepmom... You know, Courtney Love participates and Francis Bean Cobain, who's basically estranged or at least has had a very complicated relationship with Courtney Love, is producing it. So there's all of these figures who loved him trying to sort through where his suicide came from, I think, and in some ways talking very directly and owning up to the roles they feel like they may have Played in it. A whole other fascination of this film is the discrepancy between the very distinctive and fascinating and off putting but fascinating face of Courtney Love in the early 90s and her like plastic real housewife. Oh, I just now. have to say,
3: The Afterlife of Courtney Love has made me so sad because I really loved that whole album and I thought Courtney Love was a great musician and singer at the time. No,
2: I mean, whole Live Through This to me is like a much more powerful and important album than Nevermind. That's an amazing album. But I'm curious, Dana, what did Nirvana mean to you?
3: I mean, I guess to me they did hit at exactly the time in my life where, you know, I was able to hear them and needed to hear them. I'm actually the same age as Kurt Cobain. I was born a few months before him, I think, and he was 27 when he died and I was 27. And, you know, most of my friends were about 27. Obviously, I was not living, you know, the troubled existence of a Kurt Cobain, but it was definitely a tumultuous, melodramatic you know time of heartbreak and loss in my life and that sound that they made it was sort of was a sound of the time that that spoke to me particularly and this makes me really sad to see that the documentary ends with this this moment and doesn't really go that much into it but particularly that unplugged concert they played because i think it was the first time that i could hear the lyrics to their songs you know you could hear the anger before and maybe once in a while like catch a, a lyric here and there but i don't think i realized sort of what a poet he was as a lyricist and also as a singer of other people's lyrics and what a sense of language and delivery he had until that Unplugged MTV show, which I remember at the time, it's not like MTV Unplugged was a show that I tuned into often, but in the equivalent of social media of the time, you know, just the sort of buzz of people talking I realized, oh, you've got to watch this episode of MTV Unplugged. It's great. There has not been another episode Mm -hmm. like it. And sure enough, it's this gem-like, perfect acoustic show with the most surprising song choices and the most incredible delivery. And just it made this perfect album, which, of course, came out after he died and then became, you know, like a quintuple, platinum, best-selling album, probably because he had just died. But that moment of seeing him on MTV, I remember, made me realize, oh, this guy is a real musician. He's going to be around. He's going to do other things besides this, like, loud, angry, you know, n- nouveau punk that he's been playing. And I have to see him live. You know, that was just sort of a, a thing that was in my mind. Like, when I can, I'm going to see Nirvana live. Of course, three months later after it aired, he was dead.
0: Mm. One thing I wanted to say quickly before we move on is it occurred to me while watching this, there are two extremes of kinds of artists. I think one is the person who just has a kind of creative will to power and they're going to make it one way or the other. And they're just go in search of an incidental medium for their creative will to power at the very other extreme is, is someone who, if they don't find the right thing, they're going to be completely lost. Like if they don't find their thing, they're going to have nothing. And Cobain was that second one, that second extreme in, in the extreme And that was what really hit me about the first hour of the documentary, which I think is vastly more captivating than the second hour. I mean, not coincidentally, it's up until he becomes famous that the documentary is is gripping. And then after which it becomes a little bit banal because it's about drugs and uh, inability to handle money, drugs and fame. But up until then, you realize the extent to which had this kid not found rock and roll, he was not going to make it. He would have died a decade earlier, almost without question. And the extent to which music was salvific salvific for him is in the music. And that's what young people heard in it. It it saved him. It will save me. I mean, I, I know that that doesn't, from the standpoint of my own middle age, I know that that equation doesn't really hold up. But when you are hearing that music, you believe it. And that's why it has that unbelievable power.
3: Yeah, I know we're running out of time, Steve, but that portrait of him as an artist who had to do that thing that he did, I think, is is very aptly captured by the documentary, and it's one of the things that it does capture well. I think you hear it in his own voice, in fact, him talking about it in either an interview or one of those tapes or something, and saying you know that first time that he got together to play with friends play rock and roll in a room basically and he said our audience was two people who hated us and hated our music you know but it felt like the thing I had been meant to be doing all my life yeah and but that, it was a gig Yeah, but it was a gig for us right yeah. and that was a, a vision of him that I, I hadn't had before this documentary I mean you, when he was famous he was always of course withdrawing from fame with this kind of um, you know almost this, this disgust for his own notoriety right and his little mohair sweaters and putting, putting on this very very modest air but his ambition and the part of him that really mm. wanted to make a great rock band and wrote a note to them when they were first practicing saying, a great rock band must practice at least five times a week. And, you know, was really sort of running a tight ship and trying to make the best rock band he could. That was a surprising element for me of the documentary and, and an inspiring one.
0: Okay, Dana, pick a pick a song. What Nirvana song are we going out on here?
3: From this segment or from the whole show? I think that's well, we going to be Ann Hepperman's
0: it. choice. I, no, but for the, for the whole show, it's always up to the hep, the hep cat, but... <laughs> But for this segment, we have to go out on Nirvana, the sound I, of Nirvana.
3: I don't know. I mean, I'm going to pick something acoustic, and then I'll be uncool because
0: I won't no, be doing the early stuff. It's Nirvana. You can't <laughs> fuck this up.
3: I know. Let's do all apologies because it's been going through Julia's head.
0: Oh, you didn't just pick all apologies. Oh fuck you! So, all right, <laughs> well, fuck I'm, me.
3: Wait for endorsements. I will talk more. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, Kurt Cobain montage of Heck is the documentary on HBO about uh, Nirvana and Kurt Cobain. Please watch it and tell us what you think and what that band meant to you. We'd love to hear facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have?
2: Our sponsor this week is Selma, the terrific movie about Martin Luther King, which we discussed a few months ago on the show. For the ad, we should just go back and play the whole segment where we all quelled about the movie and how fantastic it was. But it is now available on a Blu-ray combo pack and DVD. From the producers of 12 Years a Slave and acclaimed director Ava DuVernay comes the true story of courage and hope that changed the world forever. Golden Globe nominee David Oyelowo shines as Martin Luther King Jr., who rallied his followers on the historic march from Selma to Montgomery in the face of violent opposition, an event that became a milestone victory for the civil rights movement. Own Selma on Blu-ray and DVD today from Paramount Pictures, rated PG-13. I will say we don't always circle back to the movies that we've talked about in the past, but this movie, I've been thinking about this movie like fairly regularly since we saw it. I think it was not just a powerful viewing experience, but a really interesting portrait of an effort at social change in the face of systemic injustice that feels super pertinent as we look at changes around gay rights and gay marriage, as we have a conversation around trans rights. And of course, as we talk about race and poverty and the relationships between poor, mostly black communities and police departments around the country. Like, I feel like there's a whole set of conversations swirling through the culture this year and efforts at change that, that have cast my mind back towards this movie since then. I think it's like more than a bunch of great performances. It's like a really interesting moment and an interesting process piece that I just keep thinking about. So I would heartily commend all of our listeners who have not yet seen it to uh, go see it, and it is now available to you for purchase. So check it out. Selma.
3: Yeah, Julian, it's worth noting that Ava DuVernay, the writer and director of Selma, is still a part of those conversations, um, including her next upcoming feature project, which is about Hurricane Katrina and the aftermath. So, you know, I think she's going to continue to be a director to watch. If you haven't seen Selma, you should. All right, Steve, what's next?
0: All right, moving on. Seth Stevenson is a longtime contributor to Slate Magazine and a very close friend of this program. It's great to have him back on to talk about his piece about boxing. Seth, hey, welcome to the
1: program. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on.
0: Your piece is called What It's Like to Hit a Man. Let me quote from it a little bit, and then we'll dig in. Myself, uh, you say, I've never harbored an urge to beat anybody up. In that instant before I first unleashed my fist at Mike's face, that was Pesca, I hope. I could sense myself struggling to... Punch. It wasn't Pesca. I could sense myself struggling to punch through millennia of human social compacts, years of conditioning from my parents and teachers, and not for nothing the deep-seated pacifism, you might term it, wissiness that dwells within me. Seth, one part of the arc of this wonderful piece of uh, first-person journalism is that it actually felt... Great to hit another person once you broke through the crust of uh, social convention. The subhead of the piece is, I tried boxing. It was scary
1: how good it felt. What led you to do this, and, and why was it so exhilarating? Well, I, w- I was out in Los Angeles, and a friend of mine invited me to come try boxing at his boxing gym, which is actually Manny Pacquiao's gym, where he trains wildcard boxing. And I had never done it before. I hadn't really thought about doing it that much before. Um, we got out, and mostly at first I just did the exercises, hitting the heavy bags, doing the sit-ups. It's a great workout. And then uh, at the end, after I'd gone a few times, my, my friend said, hey, why don't we just do a little controlled sparring? And so we actually started throwing punches at each other. And they were very choreographed. We knew what was coming. No one was going to hurt each other. Um, but it was sort of exhilarating to throw a punch at my friend's head and also felt very weird and I could feel myself trying to overcome all these instilled things within me and I had to figure out where that was going to go and and it made me really curious about the violent urges within me that I think are within all of us to some degree. And I wanted to explore it more. And so when I got back to New York, I joined uh, Gleason's gym, which is a very famous boxing gym here in New York. And I started training a lot. And the more I trained, the more I wanted to see what it was really like to square off against a person instead of against a heavy bag. Mm. The good thing about
0: me is that if you hit me in the head, it pops right off. And that actually is a better way to take a blow. I can just stick it right back on. It's totally (laughs) fine. But I've noticed an interesting (laughs) pattern. Yes. I've noticed a pattern, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, which is that boxing is plunging in popularity as a spectator sport, but it's surging in popularity as a workout or a hobby. So people obviously get a super intense workout, but they're getting something else. So put me in the ring, Seth Stevenson. The first time you really got in, competitively into a ring where someone was really trying to like kind of beat the crap out of you and vice versa.
1: What was that like? Well, my trainer put me in. I begged my trainer. So I'd signed up for this fantasy boxing camp. And before I went, I wanted to have at least a little experience in the ring, having sparred at least once before I got to this camp and suddenly was thrown in the ring against people. So I begged my trainer, even though it was probably a little early for me to be doing it, he agreed to put me in the ring against, he had a, a group of sort of white-collar boxers. He had his serious younger guys who were training to become professional boxers. And then he had this group of slightly older white-collar guys who liked to do the training and liked to get in the ring once a week and, and, and pummel each other. So he threw me in with these white-collar guys. The first guy I fought against was this very slender South Asian yuppie guy named Vic. And he had been training a lot longer than me. And uh, he knew how to hit me. He could see where my openings were and he would hit me. And uh, I just sort of waded into them. The first time I got in against him, I had i had been doing all this training. I had strategy. I knew what I was supposed to do. But the second, it just all falls apart instantly when the bell rings and there's someone throwing fists at you. You just forget it all. You just cover up. You just want to huddle. I ended up weirdly kind of just wading into the punches because I knew I was supposed to be aggressive and not a coward. And, and I just sort of <laughs> forgot. And I also, I didn't feel them. I mean, my adrenaline was so high that I could barely even feel the fact I was getting hit until later on the subway ride home when I was like my stomach was just aching and my head was a little dizzy um, and I realized oh yeah you were having punches thrown at you it's, it's a very strange feeling I'm sure the more you do it the more you get used to it but I, I, even after I, I quit eventually and I, I never got to the point where it felt normal
3: I have a couple things to say about that. First of all, that, that visceral feeling that you described in that first moment in the ring with Vic was just so beautifully done in the story. And I guess that's a compliment to Julia, too, because I assume you edited this, right? Uh, I will
2: accept no compliments for this piece, <laughs> except for putting lurid headlines on the top of it. That was all but, Seth. I mean, I just
3: feel like as someone who is vaguely repulsed, no, pretty intensely repulsed by boxing, like scared of boxing movies because they're going to show Raging Bull close-ups of, you know, like people's jaws being broken at close range, just basically I'm just way too much of a wimp to even face the fact that boxing exists. (laughs) I was very fascinated to get inside the brain of a person, a regular person who's kind of experiencing that aggression and those like rushes of of rage. And it was really beautifully evoked. But but one of my questions to you was going to be, so after that Vic experience, did you rethink the fantasy boxing camp idea?
1: Yeah, I was scared. I was like, what did I get myself into here? And, And these people at the boxing camp, I know you don't go to a boxing camp weekend unless you kind of want to beat the crap out of somebody was my assumption. That's not why I was going. I was more curious about things inside of me. And and it turned out some people we're more on that tip. But uh, I, I had this assumption that people were going because they really wanted to just go beat the crap out of strangers. And I got scared because I didn't know who I'd be up against and, and how serious it would be. And I could tell that Vic was even taking a little bit easy on me. And so, yeah, I got a little bit apprehensive about, about going there after that. I mean, I was like, what did I get myself into? What did I ask for here? Because what was curious to me was, even before I ever did any of this, when I would get frustrated at things, like I'm trying to write a story and it's frustrating and it's bumping up against my own limitations, or I'm I'm feeling like an idiot about something I said last night at a party, I would have this urge to kind of hit something, to kind of like slap my fist against something. And I asked around. I, w- am I weird? Am I a especially violent person? I asked around, and no. I, basically, every male friend said yes. I have that urge too, and almost all of the women I asked said the same thing. I have when I get really frustrated, or, or I feel like I said t- something I want to take back. I just kind of want to hit something.
3: I just pounded a desk with a teddy bear last week for <laughs> about go. for about a full minute. <laughs>
1: there you go, and Dana, I think of you as like one of the that least violent so people I can Dana. imagine. <laughs> but I can't
3: that imagine so that Dana. translating into wanting to punch someone in the face. You well, know?
1: no, I didn't want. I didn't. So I, that that urge. It's not to hit a specific person in the face. It's just to hit something, right? It's the the same urge you had when you pounded that teddy bear. It it doesn't take any sort of real corporeal form. It's just like, I want to hit something, Mm -hmm. some vague thing. And it's nearly universal. And so now I need to ask Julia and Steve, you must, now that since I'm talking about this question. I feel like
2: I'm one of the women you asked about this when you were on this uh, psychological vision quest. And that I told you at the time that I'm not very violent. And I'm not a very angry person. But I... Now that I think about it, I do have that thing sometimes where you're just so frustrated. I feel like I associate it more with frustration than yeah. rage, where I'm just like, ah, you know, and you, I, I definitely would, like, kind of, like, pound my fist That's against the side of the door. Yeah. There's and I love a... your point, Sisseth, that it
3: solves your cerebral problems as a writer in no way whatsoever. There's no solution whatsoever. I know. I can't write this paragraph. I'll punch a wall. There's
1: such a wide gulf between the problem and that solution.
2: Well, so I feel like it does solve the frustration thing in a little bit. Like, if life just stacks up and you're... Aggravated again. It's like not anger for me. It's like it's you're just like oh, everything's not going right. Like to just like yeah. For some reason, Why? Like, the image Where I was, does like, that come from? To, I don't know. But there's like a release to it, which is yeah, very alien to like how one conducts life as a modern human.
0: But I mean, I mean, we 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 should be able to ev psych this a little bit, right? I mean. Every, I mean, these Marvel movies that are making a billion dollars every throw out are essentially about physically larger people who hit harder, right? I mean, it's, it's clearly it's universal, primitive and, and written at some level into our genetic makeup. I don't have any deeper theory than that. but Yeah, the F-Psych um, thing
3: would just be essentially that the insurance company that made me so mad would be like the other caveman aggressing me, right? <laughs> and so I take my actual baby bear cub and pound it against a
2: rock.
0: Damn, man, you got to lay off the jasmine tea. I think dial it back Wait, a Steve,
2: but what's your, what's your relationship to hitting the wall? Oh,
0: I'm the most internally twisted, violent, unhappy rageful person who ever lived are you kidding thank god i was made spasmodic and and weak uh, you know to go with it that is the sign of a benevolent creator right there but yeah no i'll I'll smash the shit out of any random object (laughs) (laughs) the day's going badly enough (laughs)
2: <laughs> this is starting to into a very violent catfest episode. I mean, it's interesting because I do think there's a gender thing here. Like, I have no fascination with boxing. I mean, I loved your piece and, it, and the kind of psychological journey you were on, but the sport befuddles me. I went to cover a boxing match once and, like, knew nothing about what I was doing or how to look at boxing and didn't learn very much despite my best efforts. Like, it's a thing, this archetypal thing that men are fascinated with in a way that, like, women are not. I'm I'm generally not prone to gender pronouncements on this show, but, like, as a sport, as an ethos, as a culture, oh, the glory days, remember when it was the biggest sport, uh, you know, like, there's just this kind of whole fascination. And, of course, we're talking about this the week after the Pacquiao Mayweather fight, which, I presume none of us, but Dana watched. But I watched um, it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dana and her teddy bear. Yeah, and me and Rosa my teddy bear tuned in. <laughs> so we were and just a little just cho- pee graphing all the uh, punches. <laughs> but we're in this moment of a larger cultural fascination with it because this big fight that hadn't happened for ages finally happened. But um I, if we all have this urge, like there, there does it does feel like there's a male prerogative around channeling it and a male association with the sports that most directly relate to it more so I don't know is is, is boxing something you guys have been fascinated with for a long time or
1: not not professional sport I mean it's I, I don't watch it a ton I watched it on Saturday night because I you know it was the biggest fight in decades everyone told me and I could appreciate the grace and and the, the skill and, and on a level that I might not have done before I tried boxing before and that, and that was sort of amazing to watch I didn't think that was a particularly entertaining fight but I I do think there's a male aspect of asserting dominance through physicality that maybe is not quite as endemic to women. You know, it's not something that I see women doing as much as I see men doing, like when men body up to each other and like stand tall or go chest to chest. That's not something I frequently see women do when they have a dispute with someone.
3: But it's worth mentioning in that connection that one of the people you fight at the camp is a woman who outweighs you by, I don't know, 45 40 pounds. pounds. She's
1: the women's world heavyweight champion. And yes. uh, Okay, that's, that's a pretty impressive
3: <laughs> woman to fight. But still, you boxed with a woman at the camp and one of the coaches or sort of the, the the former pros who was leading the camp was also a woman.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are, ton, there are tons of female professional boxers at the camp, like four or five of them, actually. And they're all amazingly talented and could all beat the shit out of me. Even the ones who weighed 30 pounds less than me could have beat the shit out of me. I wouldn't have been able to lay a glove on them. So They're just so quick and agile.
3: And it's become a popular sport for women to practice as well, as far as a fitness
1: yeah, and there were right. women. There were women campers at the camp, amateurs who came. One of the women was a, a an attorney from St. Louis in her fifties who liked to do amateur boxing on weekends and also did kickboxing, and she loved the fitness of the sport, but she did like the competition of it also. It was you know a lot of I, a lot of the people, the campers I talked to, the men that I talked to who are campers who did this on weekends or did this on after work during the week. Um, a lot of them mentioned feeling bullied as kids or feeling like they had something to prove. Or, or one of the main um, people I talk about is this. Um, psychotherapist named Scott, who I became friends with at the camp. He's a 65-year-old guy lives in the Upper West Side, and he does rage work with his psychotherapy patients. He has them punching pillows in order to get some of that stuff out. And he himself, you know, told me that he'd been abused as a child. And so I do think a lot of people who really get into it, there is very much a psychological element to it. Because yes, of course, there's like, there's strategy to the sport. There's incredible fitness level required. There's a grace to it that is amazing to watch when you see someone who really knows what they're doing. But you can channel all those things into, say, basketball. You know, you don't need to do it in a sport where you're hitting someone, getting hit in the head. And so in order to want to do that, it's got to come from inside you. It's something that you need to prove to yourself or prove to other people or it's a fascination you have.
2: I think, I mean, and in the end you give it up, right? Because you feel like connecting to and indulging and
1: strengthening these
2: Impulses channeling these sort of violent impulses in a more specific and human-facing direction starts to not feel
1: so good to you, right? Yeah, it's not healthy. Instead, instead of wanting to hit some vague, undefined thing when I was frustrated, I started thinking about throwing like a a very careful, like perfect form left hook at something, and that something became to look a little more like you know an opponent in the ring. And so I think it was giving, it was one step closer to actually hitting something as opposed to some vague. You know, objects, and that was not so great. Even more than that, I really didn't like getting hit in the head. Like, I really didn't enjoy that. My job requires (laughs) my brain, and I'm already just barely smart enough to do it. And getting any dumber (laughs) would really be an impediment (laughs) to my career. So I just, I didn't like that. Getting hit in the stomach, I think, is long term not as bad, but it hurts a lot more for like two days. Your stomach just hurts like a sharp pain. That's no fun. And I just, I didn't like hitting people. At first, there's a thrill when you connect, and you, you find the opening and you hit it hard and you land a solid punch and there's a thrill of just accomplishment of competence that comes with that. But pretty soon I was like, wow, but that's a, I don't want to hit Scott in the head. Like, that's not great. Why am I doing that? So it just was not the sport for me after all. But (laughs) Yeah. I can't let you go without asking you one
0: quick question, though. I'm very tempted to do it, but I'm worried that if I did, would I lose my taste for intellectual bullying?
1: if you did actual bullying <laughs> if you know well, if i did if
0: i if i got my yayas out in the ring
1: would i no longer need to achieve dominance through verbal bullying i think it would just add to your arsenal be another arrow in your quiver you could be like well not only will i you, you know take a scalpel to your arguments i also could beat you up
3: but luckily because steves up in oh gedge we don't have to actually duck his flying fists just his words
1: uh, <laughs> all right well the
0: piece is what it's like to hit a man Uh, By Seth Stevenson. Seth, uh, thanks so much for coming in. It was, as always, a complete uh, delight. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do you got? The
2: Slate Culture Gadfest is sponsored by Honest Company. As parents, we all want to give our kids the healthiest start in life, but that's not always so easy On a day-to-day basis, the Honest Company provides an answer. Their products are safe and made with high-quality ingredients with the health and happiness of our loved ones in mind. And their bundles make it very easy. Just go to freehonest.com, choose the bundle that's right for you, and get the products you want when you want them delivered right to your door. Not only do they have the cutest diapers, but also household cleaners, bath and body products, and more all are safe and actually work and we actually have a special deal for you culture gab fest listeners purchase your first bundle by mother's day and they'll send you a free aromatic soy candle worth twenty dollars just use the code culture at checkout at freehonest.com and you'll get one of Honest's favorite items free go to freehonest.com and use the code culture all right steve what's next
0: thanks julia okay moving on The youth of America have been whispering about something they call the dad bod for years, so asserts Amanda Hess somewhat implausibly in a slate piece. She goes on to say the 19-year-old Clemson University sophomore named Mackenzie Pearson published an explanatory essay, Why Girls Love the Dad Bod, on the college-focused website The Odyssey, and the term has broken out out of teenage vernacular and into our general population. Julie Turner, I can only train the focus of my disbelief and scorn upon you. Um, <laughs> Hit what, me. What is the dad bod? Do you believe this is, is, is this, like is this, has it really gone full meme? Is it really something out there in the world? Or is it just Tuesday and we need some copy?
2: Uh, Well, can't both things be true? <laughs> I think there are a couple of different factors here. So, first of all, this college student wrote a charming and troubling ode to the dad bod. And now that college journalism is on the Internet, whoa for college journalists.
0: All right, But wait, well, let me stop you very quickly. For, for those, you know, the, the tiny vanishing minority of listeners out there who don't know what TF the dad bod is, you just give me a working definition.
2: Oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay. Dad bod. Well, we should quote Mackenzie here, but she asserts that basically it's uh, like... You're a guy, and you don't have a paunch, but you're just got a little meat on top of the muscle. Like maybe you used to work out, but now you eat pizza, or maybe you still do both. But there's just you're a a football
3: player who doesn't play football anymore. That's one definition she gives of the body type. There's just
2: a little bit of like a fleshy, unformedness to the dad bod. Basically, it's like out of shape men are the most attractive men to me, a lissom young college student. That is what the position of the individual piece was, and that may explain everything you need to understand about why it went viral. Basically, some young woman said, I think old man bodies are hot, and then the people of the internet Many of whom are old men were like, Whoa,
3: <laughs> amazing, and passed it
2: around. And the whole thing was very much aided by the coinage dad bod, which was not, which apparently had shown up on Urban Dictionary and been bandied about a bit among some youngster circles prior to this piece appearing in the student newspaper. But that, what a great phrase! Like, what a just a beautiful. Six letters, just a a gorgeous phoneme. Dad bod, you know? Like, I feel like if she had called it, like... It's almost a palindrome. If she'd called it, like, man gut or punch bro like we would not be having this conversation it's true
3: and even to call what Mackenzie Pearson wrote on the Clemson website an essay is really pushing it it's like three or four short paragraphs in the form of a listicle so the fact that this somehow became viral at this moment I just think has to do with the, the funness of that word and you know the concept and how people have have run with it I mean even the dad thing is kind of absurd because she's talking about men of all different ages right and says herself that her own father is very fit and trim and disturbingly adds so much so that people think we're a couple when we're out together which gives like like a little bit of a strange, creepy feel to that initial dad pod post. But plenty of the people she's talking about are not dads. They're just like younger guys who, by the standards of, I guess, Hollywood buff ab culture are a little doughy.
0: Right. So that has to be to the extent that this has any basis in fact whatsoever. This has to be a critical point that it's a reflection on fatigue in the face of the perfectly chiseled male right That that somehow that fetish has played its uh, has played itself out a little bit and you know and there's something about being but what is it about being slightly out of shape the, well uh, I, mean, I mean i'm just trying to figure out what does it first of all is this thing true at all or are we just spinning wheels here or and if it is true why like what like uh, what's you know what's the appeal of the slightly out of sh- like but like, this is a sweet spot you have to hit, right? Like, if you're absolutely ripped and in awesome shape, you don't have a dad bod. If you're a completely doughy, overweight slob, you're not a dad bod. It's like, it's 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 this in-between thing. But anyway, take it away.
2: Asking for a friend, Steve Metcalf. I, you know, I don't, I do not think this is an actual trend. I mean, I think, like... Men and women are attracted to many different things. I think this is a clever framing of a sort of body that is, A, extremely common, right? Like, probably lots of people are not morbidly obese and not, like, you know, insanely... Diamond cut fit either they're like fall in this lumpy middle, and this is a girl saying like this lumpy middle is pretty attractive to me. You know the the way the initial piece is framed has some troubling kind of insecurity underpinning it, where it's like I prefer to be with a schlubby guy so that I can be the pretty one. I prefer to be with a schlubby guy so I don't feel self conscious about how I look in a bathing suit because they look so jacked with their I don't even know the names of all those muscles that one sees that felt not empowering or body positive in in various ways. But like, I, you know, people are attracted to all different kinds of things. I, don't, I do not think this is an actual movement. At the same time, I think it does two things interestingly simultaneously, right? It both affirms the right of men to look like schlubs and still get laid, which is like an irritating truism of the, of the centuries. And yet it also objectifies men in a way that's new, right? Yeah. Like having a name, having a type saying like, if you have X physical attributes, you will receive Y, you know, set of acclaim from random Clemson sophomores. That feels new. So at on the one hand, this feels incredibly irritating and patriarchal and like, um, you know, listen, women we've seen um, shown. I, I just watched part of Chef this weekend in which Scar- Scarlett Johansson and John Favreau, is that who plays the lead in Chef? That yeah. In which like John Favreau is having an affair with Scarlett Johansson and it's just <laughs> uh, like the, the talk about fantasy camp the physical ma- the male female inverse of that would just never ever happen on <laughs> any screen ever <laughs> and that's <laughs> galling right so this is affirming a sexist norm and yet objectifying men, which feels like reverse sexism in a way that's slightly new. So that's what, I mean, to the degree there's anything to get your head around here, that's the thing to get your head around. And I'm not sure I love a world where it's like, great, let's objectify and have names for types of male bodies, too.
3: But I do think that there's a little bit of a, it's nice, it may not be a very well-thought-out feminist manifesto, that's for sure. And as one feminist writer pointed out, what would we be saying if suddenly mom bod was being talked about by all kinds of men? Is like, I love me a chunky mom bod, right? Yeah, I guess that's the MILF thing, right? But yeah, I mean, but it's
2: considered the MILF, the MILF body is not the dad bod body. Oh, yeah. The MILF is more like the, the working out, right? It's sort of like the yeah, the, the, the MILF has wife, like mom. Pilates bod, I think. The MILF is yeah, not, no, the MILF I, is I not allowed to go to sea. But I'm
3: just saying, however we would, we would conceptualize the mom bod, if the mom bod was being passed around as a meme, there would be talk of sexism, right? And so this is because it's a reversal of expectations. But I actually do think that it may do a tiny bit of good in that there is starting to be more of an expectation in Hollywood movies, for example, that Chris Pratt is going to get himself looking like a superhero for Guardians of the Galaxy, right? He wasn't fine before in his Parks and Recreation, in my opinion, much more adorable, slightly bigger version. Same thing with Jason Siegel, who got really gaunt for that movie with Cameron Diaz. I wrote about it in my review. It made me really sad. And I missed the chunky, naked Jason Siegel from Forgetting Sarah Marshall. So as somebody myself who is rather fond of a a, a chunky comedian, I have to say. I mean, I think I embrace the dad (laughs) bod. I'm going with it. (laughs)
0: All right. Well, first of all, I love that, that, it, that it doesn't exist, but we each have an elaborate theory about it. That's a, a <laughs> new a new height has been reached for, by, uh, by the Gap Fest. So let Wait, me we should my... do a
2: show that's all just fake topics one
0: week. <laughs> <laughs> we do it every week, Julia. So um, here's my here's my theory for this thing that doesn't exist. Um, okay. So the, at the most basic level, it's certainly it's got to be a rejection of a certain kind of like preening male narcissism. Workout narcissism. But that, I think there's something more going on. And the three interesting things to me are dad, body, and the fact that it's very American. So, it, first of all, dad, you cannot get around the connotation of dad. It, it, even though there are younger men with dad bods, it invokes older men, which is, I agree, is a little creepy. But what's interesting about it is it's almost an oxymoron, right? Dad bod. Because Julia, you talk about this, you know, the millennia of sexism that go into schlubby men and beautiful women. Well, why? That was that was the relationship between a certain form of female power, which was sexuality, uniting up with a certain int- or being traded for a certain form of male power, which was uh, which was money or status. And this invokes the middle aged man without also then going into money and power. So implicit in it, to me, is the rejection of the kind of hedge fund ideal of, uh, of um, Fifty Shades of Grey right that fantasy for some people is an I would imagine I pray is completely inert of the superpower you know super rich older man uh, taking up the woman so it's it sort of in its own perverse way it rejects the princess fantasy implicit in that and then finally it's very American I think for being focused on the body in this particular way that it, that it implies a very American norm of male sexiness and so to me it just reinforces this like extremely i think american ideal that has to filter through oh the hard body is what makes hard body status or money is what makes men sexy and that's why this fights against that meme and that to me is a little sad
2: I guess so. I mean I do I think the your point about the financial inversion is really fascinating, right? Like the dad having the primary identifier of a middle aged man be his dad dumb rather than his career or his status or his money or his sugar daddiness or, you know, the the sort of the dad of dad is really the like playground and barbecue dad, not the sex fantasy dad. So that's fascinating. But I think the like micro moment when a man had to be as cut as a woman is like eight years that started twelve years ago yeah, or right. something it's like sort of
3: like boohoo long time. You guys had to worry about it. Yeah, you know, it's like this rejection. You know, the the, the you know part of in straight culture anyway. I mean, I think in gay culture there's a very different set of expectations. I for think bonds.
0: I think I think it's 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 been out there since since Top Gun, Tom Cruise and Top Gun since yeah. Okay, so. and it's been I, part of the it's been part of the culture. The possibly not at all dominant or exclusive the way being a sexy bikini friendly, you know, a woman with a bikini friendly body.
2: Right. And it's true, actually, if you look back at women's bikini bodies, I mean, even Raquel Welch, if you put her, you know, who's like the ultimate bikini hottie of the 70s, like her body is not her body's not Megan Fox's body, you know, like the decreasing humanness of the bodies we right. revere, I guess, is, <laughs> right. a, is a problem of both genders. But, it, you know, so I don't know that I think, like, America has lionized, you know, the, whatever those little triangular muscles on the side <laughs> of the abs are since the age of Washington or anything. But
3: um, <laughs> Jefferson was cut.
0: <laughs> no, but I think it does. But no, I know I don't want to cut you off, but it just very quickly, I just mean a certain like you know, even even Marlboro Man or or Clint Eastwood or John Wayne, like Dad, as someone who has become one, right? Dad is an enormously desexualizing, uh, for totally healthy reasons, is a is a very desexualizing category to be put in, and you put yourself in it. When you're a father and when you're acting as a father around, you know, kids, you, you, you know, and, and it's, it's the, it is completely the natural arc of of life. But it's interesting that that is being resexualized here. That's, the, you know, it's, it's. The two words are fighting against one another in this interesting way.
2: Right, right. I mean, maybe that's part of what makes the term electric and pass-aroundable. I mean, you're right, Dana, that there was the initial kind of creepiness of the girl's description of her relationship with her dad in the piece. And um, maybe that's part of the frisson. I don't know. The embrace of, of daddom as a, like, center stage part of American manhood strikes me as a as a good. So if we can, you know— sexualize that and make it feel less emasculated i think it's probably overall a win for culture to the degree that this is a win for anything <laughs> or an idea that has any depth or value at all apart from just being fun to say
0: all right why don't you just come to facebook.com slash and talk to us about dad bod do you have one do you know one do you care about it is it a real thing let us know we're very curious all right well now is the moment in our program where we endorse dana stevens what do you have
3: well, my endorsement this week is connected with the Montage of Heck, Kurt Cobain documentary we all watch. So as I mentioned, it ends on a song from this legendary MTV Unplugged performance that became a best-selling album. And uh, and the song that, that it ends on is this song that's strongly associated with Lead Belly, although he didn't actually write the song. It's an old folk song that he sort of brought back into to circulation. It's that song that I believe on the album is called Where Did You Sleep Last Night? But it's also in some versions called In the Pines... And many, many people have covered it now. Anyway, this all leads to my endorsement, which is, you know, obviously you should know that unplugged version. It's a beautiful cover of the song, but you should also get the Smithsonian Folkways' five CD set of Lead Belly's Complete Works that was just released a few weeks ago from this great folk label um, is available also, of course, as a, as a download from the internet, but I kind of want the box set because I'm sure it's full of great liner notes and amazing, you know, sort of studies on, on Lead Belly, but he's one of those figures who even if you think you don't know a Lead Belly song, you do, and you've sung it many times. I mean, the songs associated with him include Goodnight Irene and The Midnight Special and all sorts of songs that, you know, I can't actually guarantee that he wrote all of these songs. I'm not sure which are more sort of like folk songs he was carrying through, but he was definitely a person who helped the form to survive and is just an incredible, incredible singer and guitarist and was a huge influence
2: on, on Kurt Cobain as well. That sounds amazing. Oh,
0: absolutely, um, Julia, what do you have?
2: Okay, well, before I endorse, I have a correction already to something I said earlier in this podcast. Producer and. Tells me that in fact, the name of George Herbert Walker Bush's dog, memoirist dog, was not Socks. Socks, of course, was the Clintons' cat. The dog of the Bush ones was Millie, and it was Millie who wrote her her tell all about life in the Bush White House. So apologies to Socks, Millie, the Bushes, the Clintons, uh, and Felix. But now we've set the record straight on pets and potential pet memoirists. All right. My endorsement this week is Hamilton. I just went this weekend and saw the production of Hamilton at the Public Theater downtown in New York. Uh, And the production actually then closed on Sunday, um, but is returning to Broadway later this summer. It is one of the most exhilarating, extraordinary, transformative, marvelous experiences I've ever had in a theater. And Basically, every single person listening to this podcast in every corner of the globe should, like, plan a trip to New York City to see this production when it comes to Broadway. I mean, I suppose you can wait and see if it, uh, if the reviews suggest it's transferred well to a bigger arena because it's it was pretty small and intimate at the public. But it's the creation of uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who was the force behind the musical In the Heights a couple years ago, which won a bunch of Tonys. But this is a portrait of... Alexander Hamilton, and sort of a reclamation of a lesser studied founding father, done essentially is a hip hop musical, although I guess he's explicitly requested that it not be referred to as a hip hop musical. And it does use a bunch of different musical forms. There's hip hop, there's rhyme, there's sort of show tunes, there's kind of like 60s Brit pop, there's all kinds of musical influences in it. And it's basically an opera, there's no like chit chat between the scenes, and then they launch into rapping. And the performances are extraordinary. I think a lot of the original actors are moving to Broadway. But it's, it's, It's just an amazing, amazing production, Um, like exhilarating and transfixing and transformative. And I've had the tunes in my head for days and it's great.
0: All right, I Steve. am so excited to see that. I really do hope we get in and do it for the show. Um, I think we're going to make every effort to to do that. But um, okay, so I have two things I want to endorse very quickly. They were both on the internet this week. The first is uh, as part of the Opinionator blog uh, for the New York Times. Dan, I'm very curious whether you saw this uh, academic named Christy Wampole posted something called the conference manifesto.
3: No, I didn't see.
0: And it begins: We are weary of academic conferences. We are humanists who recognize very little humanity in the conference format and content. And it goes on just bullet point after bullet point. You know, our jaws have hung in disbelief as a speaker tries to squeeze a 30-minute talk into a 20-minute slot by reading too fast to be understood. We have been one of two attendees at a panel. And it's actually quite funnier than the lines that I chose to read. It gets funnier and funnier, but also you feel as though she is absolutely hitting a very real bullseye. And that something has happened, especially in the humanities, to conference culture that's totally endemic and representative of what's happened uh, to the whole of the study of the humanities. I think it's from someone who's, a, you know, it's not a sour grapes adjunct or an exile like you and me. It's someone who's in it and succeeding in it who just finds its protocols and rituals have become routine and, and preposterous and seem to serve no need whatsoever. It rings true to someone like me who's been away from it for a long time. But I cannot imagine that this is said prejudicially or written prejudicially. Um, but it's enjoyable in and of itself. It will certainly inflame some pre-existing prejudices, which may not be entirely healthy. But my sense is that it, that it is telling a kind of important truth. And uh, again, it academia is faced with a kind of inside-outside problem, which is from the inside, the people who have tenure and a decent job, and, and middle-class job security and are producing scholarship in order to get that, think of it as an entirely successful system, and everyone outside of it, which includes people very close to the inside of it, people like me who still teach in universities occasionally, adjuncts, students and graduate students, undergraduates who might major in English, um, who are incredulous at the entitlement of the people inside who feel no need to make what they're doing more vital to the people outside of it. And the defense is always, we are credentialed literary scholars. We know what we are doing. You are Philistines. And that no longer flies, uh, to my mind, um, because the, the truth is the English and the complete and the history and the art history and the philosophy departments ought to be absolutely not only central to the american university but to the american experience and they aren't anymore so i recommend this as something that will hopefully stimulate that debate uh in addition to some prejudices but the other thing i want to um endorse very wholeheartedly is uh an op-ed in the la times by the writer caleb crane who's just i mean what can you say just an exemplary intellectual journalist about the charlie abdo controversy which lives on now in the form of a Penn controversy that Penn is giving some sort of freedom of expression award to the Charlie Hebdo, the massacred Charlie Hebdo cartoonists, now a fairly large number in excess of 100 and maybe approaching or in excess of 200. I'm not sure. Penn members have decided not to attend the event as a way of indicating they do not believe this, that Hebdo deserves this uh, award. No doubt for a variety of reasons, one of which is they either find it too juvenile or potentially too uh, racist to earn it. This has inspired a lot of writers, including many for whom I have unlimited respect, saying that the pen descent is ill thought out, possibly itself childish um, and kind of intellectually childish or, or, or immature i, I don 't want to go deep into my feelings about the about the uh, award going to um, Hebdo, I wanted to say quickly that it just seems to me that the work of an intellectual begins where there is otherwise unanimity. And that writers, some of whom are George Carol Oates, I mean, some of these people are not lightweights, are deciding not to honor Charlie Hebdo as a signal that something needs to be thought through. And we can't simply thump our copy of, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes and, and John Milton's area Pajitica and say simply that freedom of speech is an absolute value. And when it's under threat or attack, you know, we must defend it. Everyone believes that. It's the, it's the role of an inter- intellectual to find those wrinkles in opinion, those fissures in in opinion where two things have to be reconciled, but don't reconcile. And the work of thinking has to take place. And it seems to me of the people who've written about this, Caleb Prane was the rare person who really took up the challenge and said, I'm going to actually try to out somewhat out loud and vulnerably think this through. And whether or not I think the award should go to these people, whether or not a dissent is a considered or ill-considered thing. And it's just a beautiful piece of writing. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. It's called Charlie Hebdo Cartoonist Heroes or Racists? The answer is not that simple. Exactly right. If the answer were simple, one would not need to write about it. And it offended me that some people who I really admire wrote about it as if it were simple. Question, it isn't. So a huge shout out to Caleb Crane. It's an exemplary piece of writing. Um, all right, thank you, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, so good to have you back. That's what you think for now.
2: <laughs> wait, wait till she pummels us, teddy bear style.
0: Julia, as always, a total pleasure.
2: Yeah, I didn't let you get. Uh, I didn't let you miss me, so I'm just still here. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But um,
0: a pleasure as always. <laughs> all right, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com/culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, Facebook.comslash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albracht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gabfest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com/slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate for Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week, out Black
3: girl, black girl, don't lie to me. Tell me where did you sleep last night? In the pine, in the pines, oh, where well, the sun never shines. I wish you oh, too.